Well, again, good morning and welcome to the Olathe campus of Christ Community Church. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, it's great to, to be together as we enter into this new time, this new study, uh, this new series together. And in our uh, 13 years of marriage, I cannot tell you how many conversations Kelly and I have had about money. I'm, I'm sure some of you can relate, right? How do we spend it? How do we save it? And frankly, how do we get more of it, right? Or, or, or how much do we give away in, in addition, you know, above the baseline of 10%? Or, or how much do we save for retirement? Or, or I think one of the hardest ones right now, how, how much do we save for college? Because the reality is you know it's not going to be enough, right? I mean, anybody else just sort of waiting for the whole system to crumble, right, and then start over with something else, right? It's just a mess, isn't it? Uh, according to a, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal, I mean, the title says it all. Congratulations, class of 2015. You're the most indebted ever for now, right? Which is hopeful for the rest of us, right? Uh, and according to recent studies, the average uh, graduate of 2015 with student loan debt owes $35,000. And then how many of us, uh, because of the job market currently in our, in our culture, and our society, uh, know uh, a recent college grad who's, you know, working at Starbucks, right? Or, or some other entry-level job, trying to pay off that kind of debt. It's not going to work, is it? Pastor Tom, he's our, our senior pastor. We, we work closely together across all of our, our campuses. Uh, he likes to say the song of the day when he was growing up was, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? Uh, but the song today, right, if it was rewritten, would probably be more like, what we need now is jobs, sweet jobs, right? And we, we look around and we know that because many of us, not only do we, do we wrestle with whether or not our work matters, I mean, every, every one of us wrestles, I wrestle, every one of us wrestles with that question. But more and more today, we are also wrestling with the question, is there even going to be work for me to do? Are, are my gifts, my skills even needed? Can I contribute? And that's, frankly, that's coming from me, right? Here, uh, white, middle-class, educated, male, uh, well-employed, and, and well-connected. Think about that same question uh, from the perspective of someone living in the inner city, right, where joblessness has reigned for generations. Think about that in, in places across the world, right, where, where there's, just, there's just not meaningful work to be done, and so many suffer as a result, I mean, I ask those questions wondering, how am I going to be able to keep up my standard of living? I mean, others ask those questions wondering if they're going to have enough food to eat. We live in a complex economic world. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're young, old, whether you have a lot or a little, whether you even make a paycheck for the work that you do. Every one of us is deeply affected by the economic world in which we live, the money, the work, the relationships, and how it all very complexly, right, complicatedly fits together. Now, as, as Christians, we love to say that the good news of Jesus changes everything, right? You've probably heard me say that a thousand times if you've been coming here. I mean, that, that, that what he has done, his life, death, and resurrection, it changes everything, all of who we are, everything that we do, the way we see and understand every single thing about us, that there ought to be a deep connection from what we hear on Sunday mornings to what we do when we show up at the office or whatever it is we do on Mondays. But those things ought to be inextricably linked. But surely that 
doesn't include our understanding of a complex global economy, does it? But you know that Jesus actually had a whole lot to say about money and work? A lot. And, and the Bible talks about it all, all over the place. In fact, even if we were to look at Jesus' parables, I mean, how many of them are about farming, right? The, the main business of the day or, or other, other work, even investment and taxes and, and all of that. I mean, Jesus talks quite a bit about that. And he did most of his teaching not to the religious elite, but to the normal people in the marketplace like you and me, surrounded by buyers and sellers. And don't forget as well that Jesus spent the majority of his life on planet earth learning to trade and running a small carpentry business the majority of his life on planet earth and so this this morning and for these next six weeks together we're going to try to bring some of this together Right? And it, it is complex to even think about with, when, once you start talking about the economy or work, I mean, it's so complex, right? And, and the, the, the way it's so globally interconnected more and more in our society today. But we're going to try to bring it together. We're going to look at a variety of scriptures. We're in uh, Jesus' parable today of, of the Good Samaritan. Uh, next week, we're going to be in Genesis. So we're going to kind of jump around to kind of paint a picture of what, what does it mean for us to love our neighbor in this way? We're calling the series Neighborly Love. Because loving your neighbor is more than just bringing them soup when they're sick. It's, it's even more than telling them about the good news of Jesus. It's never less than those things. But it is so much more. Loving your neighbor. I mean, Jesus really said there's only two commands, right? That we love God and we love our neighbor. But loving others is about more than just warm feelings. What if our love for one another both our, our, our proximate neighbors as well as our global neighbors, what if that love was meant to be the fuel for the work that we do and, and everything that we do in the ways that we contribute? What if that was meant, that love was meant to be the fuel behind the, the idea and the understanding of economic flourishing for, for our entire world? So today we start with one simple, yet often overlooked reality. Compassion requires capacity. That it's, it's not enough simply for me to love my neighbor. I also have to help my neighbor. And helping my neighbor requires that I have the capacity to do so, right? Uh, money, yes, but also time and, and energy, emotional strength, and even emotional intelligence. All of those things, your, your abilities, your talents. And yes, money. Warm feelings. Yeah, okay. But so much more. Compassion requires capacity. If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We heard part of it read a moment ago. Um, and whether, whether or not you're new to church or new to the Bible, there's a, probably a pretty good chance that you've at least heard of the Good Samaritan, right? But there's something in this story uh, that we often overlook, that I think, I think we are prone to miss. And so this morning, as we, as we study this text, we're going to wrestle with three questions. Three questions. What does God want? Who is my neighbor? And then what, is it, what does it mean to love? How do I love? What does it look like to actually be a person of love? So first, what does God want? 
That's, that's the easiest in the text, right? It jumps out right away. We, we heard part of it read just a moment ago. Um, but if you can kind of picture the scene, right? Jesus is there. He's doing his thing, right? Teaching to the, to the crowds around him. And a lawyer uh, seeking to trip up Jesus, you know, insert lawyer joke here, um, seeking to trip up Jesus, comes to him and, and tries to ask him a, a stump question, right? One that he can't possibly answer. He simply says to him, how do I live forever, basically? That's the question, right? How do I, how do I make it into God's kingdom? What does God really want from me is, is the question. And it's only two things, okay? Maybe you came here this morning thinking Christianity was like super complex and overwhelming, uh, but Jesus makes it about as simple as possible, uh, as all-encompassing as possible, but really just, just two things, right? And he has the lawyer answer his own questions. I mean, that's kind of how Jesus does it, right? Um, and it comes straight out of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but, but Jesus affirms him in his answer. So what, is, what does God want? Essentially, he says God wants you to love him uh, with everything you are, everything you do, and everything you have. Easy, right? Which is actually funny. The lawyer kind of thinks that's the easy one because he really presses into the neighbor one. He's like, I can check that off the list. Like, who, who's graduated from that one? To love God with everything. And to love your neighbor as le- at least as much as you love yourself. Now, the lawyer, like any good lawyer, immediately starts looking for a loophole. And I can't blame him because if I was there, it's exactly what I would have done. And because you hear those two commands, like, oh, only two commands, this is going to be great. Uh, none of us measure up, Right? I mean, not even, not even close to what this, this bar that Jesus raises. He tries to make it, you know, he's simple, and yet it's, it's so high. And, and so, of course, the lawyer is like, okay, Jesus, can you narrow it down a bit, right? Who is my neighbor? I mean, really what he's doing there, he's asking for the minimum, right? Uh, tell me the least I have to do, the littlest amount I have to love, and then maybe we'll see, right? And before we, you know, throw this guy under the bus, let's be honest, that's kind of how we do, right? Isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, that's our mode. We want the minimum, especially when it comes to this relationship with a God that we mysteriously can't see and yet calls us to himself. What's the minimum, Jesus? And so Jesus, the master storyteller, who's never fooled by our attempts to justify ourselves, tells one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture. And for this story to work, you've got to picture it, right? You've got to enter into this, this place. And so, you know, picture a kind of a, a desert world. And, and Jesus begins sort of, you know, imagine a man journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho was a, a vibrant economic city of that day. It was about 17 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, and it was well known to be a fairly treacherous path, right? And 70 miles, that's that's, that's a bit of a stretch, right? Especially, most likely, on, on foot, right? He fell among robbers, Jesus continues. They stripped him, beat him, and left him for the vultures. And, and don't, don't miss in here both the physical and economic injustice of this, in this story, okay? Injustice in Scripture is almost always, if not always, but we'll just, almost always involves economics. It almost always involves money somehow, somewhere. 
Now, now the assumption in this story, right, Jesus is Jewish, Jesus is talking to, to, primarily to Jewish people surrounding him, so the assumption in this story is that this man lying there is also Jewish. And again, picture him lying there on the path, and through his swollen eyes, he sees somebody coming. This is his lucky day, right? I mean, except for the getting beaten part, right? Um, but somebody coming, right? And, and as he gets closer, he sees this, it's a, it's a priest coming. Like, how could it be better than that? If anybody should do something, if anybody should care, it's, it's this guy. And frankly, in that, in that culture, right, if anybody had the capacity, the money, the energy, the, the connections to be able to care, it should be the priest. Who, I mean, right, probably some of us at least know this story, cross, literally crosses to the other side of the street and just keeps going. As the, the beaten man, bloodied, dying, lying there, groans out his plea, right? Well, then another guy comes. I don't know. It's pretty good. This time is a Levite. A Levite is also a member of the, the religious aristocracy of that day. He also comes by and also just keeps on walking. I kind of by this point in the story, you hope that this beaten man is unconscious, don't you? I mean, you just kind of feel sorry to see help, rescue come that close to him twice and then to just keep walking two times. Then comes the Samaritan. What we often miss here is how much the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. This is... This is where the tension really begins in this story, as Jesus is telling it. I mean, they were divided in every way, ethnically, religiously, uh, politically, culturally. These two groups of people wanted, historically, for centuries, wanted nothing to do with one another. They were natural-born enemies. And so for this story to work, what you've got to do is you've got to imagine yourself lying there on the road. That's how Jesus is telling it. He wants us to see ourselves in the dust, bleeding. Do you you see you there, dying? And then what you've got to do next, okay, you've seen the people who should help you, who should care about you, already walk by, as, as life is literally beginning to leave your body. Now you have to picture the person that in any other circumstance, you wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. Or at the very least, you wouldn't want your kids playing with their kids. Don't be naive. We all have them, right? We all have those people in our mind, whether it's somebody of a different uh, race or, or religious background, somebody with a different, a different lifestyle or education or, or poverty level or, or, or any p- political, you know, all of that, right? We, we have those folks. The, the kind of person that you wouldn't want for your neighbor ever, whoever that is for you. That's who you see walking towards you. And all of a sudden, you could care less about all that other stuff, right? Because you're dying. You don't, you don't care who this is. You're just hoping. You, you know you wouldn't have been a neighbor to this person, but you're, hope, you're sure hoping they'll be a neighbor for you. That they'll come, that they'll have compassion, that they'll, they'll do something. I mean, do, do you feel it here, Right? I mean, Jesus is a master storyteller because he gets us all right there in the dust and we feel that tension and, and now this person that we normally would despise is coming towards us and he says the Samaritan, when he sees him, 
his sworn enemy bleeding to death, and compassion overwhelms him. The word there for compassion, it's, it's one that's less common uh, in the Greek. It actually implies like a, a visceral ache, like a physical bodily pain and, and response. Like this guy is, is feeling such empathy that he's hurting right along with him. It's the same word actually that Jesus uses just a few chapters later when he tells the story of the prodigal son. Uh, it's, it's in the scene where, if you know that story, the, the son is, is coming back, right? And the son is, is broken in every possible way. He's broken the relationship with his dad. He's broken financially because he's been eating with the pigs. He's, he's broken morally. He's broken every social custom. He is broken. And yet when the father, who's been waiting, longing for him to see, Jesus says he had compassion on him. And he loved, he loved, he ran to his son. Which, in that social day, right, that, that was, you know, against all custom. He ran to love on his son. And so when the Samaritan sees this man, he doesn't just see a neighbor. He sees family. And he's broken with compassion for this individual. Well, best of luck, he says, tosses him a band-aid, you'll be fine, right? Of course not. I mean, just like the father in the story of the prodigal who offers his son his ring and his clo- cloak and a party to celebrate. I mean, the extravagance of that story. So this Samaritan extravagantly responds, right? By canceling, you know, his, his trip that he's on, right? Of, of pushing it back at the very least and, and doing all of this thing to take the injured man to the nearest hotel and take care of him. Not only that, right? He, he essentially leaves his MasterCard behind and tells the innkeeper, whatever it costs, whatever the need, I will pay. I will take care of this stranger that I have no business loving. Did he see it there? Okay, there's a couple things. Uh, there are two pretty stark contrasts in this story. The first is the obvious one. It's the one we tend to focus on the, on the most. The second is a little bit more, more subtle, but both are, are, clearly, are clearly there. The first is, is between the, hypo- the religious hypocrisy, right, and this, this unexpected compassion that those who are supposed to love don't and the one who wouldn't, you would never think would love does, right? There's, there's a huge contrast that it should stir us up. The second contrast, though, the one that's a little bit easier to overlook is that the story begins with brutal, brutal economic injustice and ends with the exact opposite. Brutal, or not brutal, kind, right? Un- unbelievable economic restoration and generosity. Now, no doubt, right, this story is about compassion, about what it means to love and, and who, our, who our neighbor is. But compassion is about so much more than warm feelings. Because the unasked question that Jesus is trying to answer, right? Not not just what does God require, not just who is my neighbor, but the part that we so easily miss. How how do we actually do it? What does it actually look like for us to love? And there's no way around it. Neighborly love is a call to action. Action. And compassion requires capacity. It's not enough for me to just love my neighbor. I also have to help my neighbor. And to help my neighbor, I have to have the means to do so. Look at at verse 36, right? As Jesus ends this story, 
He throws it back right at this lawyer. He says to him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Compassion requires capacity. It takes time, effort, money and resources, expertise, relational energy, emotional strength, and empathy. I mean, compassion always costs, right? I mean, compassion is, is never free, not from, the, not from the perspective of the person giving it, right? It always costs something. And so, for example, even if we were to dive deeper into the story, right, for the Samaritan to actually help this man, he's got to be willing to, to change his schedule, first off, right? He's got to be okay with an interruption that's going to destroy the rest of his week, right? He, he's got to be willing to walk so that the injured man can, can ride on, on his donkey. He had to manage his money well. He had to live below his means so that he would have enough to be able to share, right? Re- refusing to spend all of his money on himself. I mean, this implies as well that he had to have a decent job. And at least be decent enough at that job to have the resources. You see, the best neighbors are also the best workers. Those who take God's call to be productive contributors of, of our world and of society, who take, that, who take that really seriously, the best neighbors are the best workers, people who are faithful and fruitful in their labors and good stewards of the resources God provides so that they are even in a position so that they can help. Because we've all probably had the opposite happen, had a moment where you feel compassion, but you feel powerless. You feel like there's nothing you could possibly do. We long, we long for capacity to help, don't we? I love how the Apostle Paul summarizes this. Um, and, and notice here, this is in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, notice as well how he mentions both the economic injustice on the one hand, as well as economic generosity. And so in, in Ephesians, you know, he's writing you know, to the church there, if you've, been, if you've been changed by Jesus, right? If you've encountered the risen Christ, if you've given your life to this good news, he says, then let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, so we, I think we all know stealing is wrong, right? I think we've probably we've covered that. Maybe not great at it, but we know that that's wrong. But do you see what else Paul says here? I mean, it's such an interesting contrast. I mean, do we realize that good honest work and making a profit for our labors and increasing in our capacity to to be able to do so is not just acceptable, right? Not just a a, a good thing, but actually a command by God that we are are to work with our hands to produce things or services of value, to actually make money in the process so that we're able to contribute to the the world around us and, and help those those who are in need. That, that is part of what it means to, to follow Jesus. Martin Luther, uh, he's the 16th century reformer. He understood this well. I, I love what he said. Uh, God does not need our good works, our good work. He doesn't need it, right? God's God. But our neighbor does. Our neighbor needs it and needs, needs it bad. And our neighbor, right, beyond merely the people who live next door, but 
across, across the world, right? As we're now more and more connected than we ever have. And the more capacity you have, the more compassion you can tangibly express. And frankly, the more capacity we have, the higher responsibility we have, right? Um, in the midst of that. And many of us here, whenever we're honest, we have a whole lot of capacity. Especially if you think about the, the world in which we live, or we place ourselves historically in the amount that we have. We, we have capacity, don't we? And I, and I realize that maybe for some of you, you're thinking, well, Nathan, I, I don't have capacity to help. Not, at least not like I want to. Like, I love, I feel those, those tugs of compassion in me, but I just don't have enough to be able to love well the, the people around me in, in need. And I, I get that, right? There, there are reasons to feel that. Maybe you're unemployed or you're underemployed. Maybe you're retired and so things just look different now. Maybe you're a student and you're trying to figure out how this fits for you or you're a stay-at-home parent and you're, you're wrestling with that. Or... Frankly, maybe you've just made really bad financial decisions as well, right? And you feel, you feel imprisoned by some of those choices and unable to help. But listen, every one of us has capacity. I mean, for some, for some maybe you, you, you have the capacity, you could buy this guy a new house, right? Others of us, maybe you could buy or make that guy a new pair of clothes, right? But every one of us has capacity, Money, yes, but also time, your gifts, your talents, your wisdom, encouragement, relational investment, your expertise, all of that. We don't all have the same capacity, but every one of us in this room has the capacity to love, especially if you've encountered Jesus, because that unleashes a whole new level. Let me show just a a really simple, uh, but I think really beautiful example of this. Let's watch. I'm just a florist. Got a small shop. Nothing special. Silly way to spend your life, I guess. Fussing with a bunch of flowers. Sometimes I wish I was good at something else. I don't know, a doctor or a missionary, someone who really helps people. But I do love flowers. I've always had a knack for it. So I do my best to make them beautiful for people. But I know flowers can't change the world. I know I don't make much of a difference. I'm just a florist. I'm just a florist.
Friends, with Jesus, there is no just. With him, everything matters. Nothing is insignificant. Everything you touch, everything you do, every person you interact with, every act of, of service or con- whatever it is, right, in the work that you do, whether you get paid for it or not, whether you stay at home or run it off, it, what, or you're a student, whatever you touch, every, everything is an opportunity to fulfill this command, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And when you do so, you are obedient to Jesus' command to us. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, during, during this series, um, we'll have some practical touch points along the way, um, I hope, at least. Um, but I just want to mention two things quickly um, as we kind of wrap up this time and really as we kind of paint this picture of where we're going over these next, next few weeks. Um, two things here, uh, just to help us get started. How do we love? Um, first, know your neighbor. Second, help your neighbor. Know your neighbor and help your neighbor. Let's just spend a, a couple minutes on each of those real fast here. First, you've got to know your neighbor. And that doesn't necessarily begin by going door to door and introducing yourself. That might be a good idea. I'm not saying against that. But for, for Jesus, particularly when it comes to this, this story, for Jesus, neighborly love begins first by seeing yourself as the one in need. Seeing your, yourself as the one in need of a good neighbor. Because the reality is, I mean, we prefer, we, we may we sort of drop that the Samaritan is considered an outcast in that culture, but to us, he's the hero of the story, right? Uh, and so we, you know, in our culture, kind of the way, we, the way we think about ourselves and our world and, you know, as Americans and all, we're, we want to be the heroes, right? And so we immediately, when we read this story, well, I want to be, be the good Samaritan. And that's, that's not bad that we want that. And yet first, and what Jesus is doing first is telling us we're the one in the ground, We're the one in the dirt, bleeding. We're the one desperate for the help of someone else. And until we see ourselves as the one in need, there's no way we're really going to help the people around us. Not really. In fact, Brian Fickert, he's author of the the book, uh, When Helping Hurts, which I would would highly recommend. He's got his PhD in economics. He's scary smart. He was with us this past uh, weekend or a week ago um, at our our conference that we did. And and frankly, listen to that audio, please especially his audio uh, from Friday night. It was the best maybe one-hour talk on poverty I've, I've ever heard. Um, listen to it. But he compellingly argues that until we see ourselves as the ones in need, any attempt to help others will likely do more harm than good because we'll come at it from a position of superiority, continuing to push those who need help down lower. But you know what? If you're a Christian, it really shouldn't be that hard to see how desperate we are, is it? Because we're, we're so poor, we're so deeply impoverished that the only way the God of the universe could rescue me, right, is for him to become a man, uh, to take on my shame and my guilt and, and actually give, give his life for me. And only when we recognize our need, only then can we truly know and love the neighbors around us. And neighbor, of course, doesn't just mean the people on your street. Right? It's, not, it's not less than that. But this story makes it clear that neighbor is anyone in need. And, and who's not in need? Right? And so for us, right, our closest neighbors is a good chance. Your closest neighbor is the people who live in your house. Right? And I can show you on a map um, if you don't believe me. Right? It's, 
It's, we forget that, though, don't we? We think that somehow loving our, our roommate or our children or our spouse is somehow in a different category, but those are your nearest neighbors. Then, of course, yeah, you got, you got the people who live, who live on the street with you. You've, um, kids, uh, the, the, the student, right, who nobody plays with, who's always kind of pushed this. You can be a neighbor to that person. Um, those of you who go to an office to work, you, I mean, you can reach out to the, the awkward coworker, right? Every office has one. Um, and if you, if you don't know who it is, uh, just, just saying, um, be aware of that. But you can be a neighbor to them. Um, do you see your customers and your clients as your neighbors? That every opportunity, every interaction with them is an opportunity for you to, to obey this command of Jesus. And this, this story shows us as well, right? It's not just those who are like us. That's who we gravitate towards. It's easiest for us to like the people who like us and are, are like us. But this shows us, right, that it breaks all cultural barriers, doesn't it? I mean, it's the immigrants who live just a few miles from here. Or the urban poor in our, in our own city, right? Relati- racial or religious outcasts. And, and frankly, in a globalized world, there's, just, there's no end to this list, Right? And so you can be a neighbor to the child who lives in in Rwanda or India. You can be a neighbor to the pastor who's imprisoned in in Iran for for sharing his faith, right? There's no end. Open your eyes, right? As we open our eyes to the needs around us, we see neighbors everywhere. And so get to know them and love them. But again, if you don't see yourself first as the one lying in the street needing help, you're not going to love, not really. Got to start from our own poverty. That even though we certainly didn't, de- didn't deserve it, our God poured out everything on our behalf. And those who have been loved like that are free to love like that. So first, you got to know them. Uh, second, then help them. Hopefully that's a little obvious, right? That we're going in that direction. But listen, I think what we tend to miss is that the, the place in your life with the highest potential for you to love your neighbor, to be obedient to Jesus in this command. It's not here. I mean, yeah, you can love one another, and hopefully we do, right? And, and be involved in, in community and, and serve one another and, and all of those kinds of things. And yes, we've said as a church over and over that we believe the local church as God designed it is the hope of the world, but that is not limited to these walls, Right? That you, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are the church everywhere you go. And so everything you do, every person you interact with, every task you accomplish, all of that matters. All of that fits into this. And so the place that you can most fully love your neighbor, there's a good chance it's going to be wherever you spend the majority of your time. Which for many of us is where we go to work. That's where it happens. That is the primary place that we can be obedient to Christ in this command. Because if if you do good work well, you're loving your neighbor. I mean, have you you ever looked at it like that, right? If you you have a job and you bring in a a financial income, right, there's a really good chance that you provide either a product or a service of value, right? I mean, what else else is there, right? You, You provide a product or a service of value, something people need that benefits humanity. And so every time you do that, you are loving your neighbor. You're loving the people, the people around you. And, and, and for those of you, right, who, who, who stay at home, 
with the kids. You're raising the next generation. Not only are you loving your closest, littlest neighbors in your home, that you, you're helping them grow in their own capacity to love and to grow up, to be contributors to the world that, that God made, right? And, and students, for you at school, right, there are neighbors there in your school that you get to, to love and to care for, but you also, you're growing in your capacity to, to love and contribute to the world that, that, God, that God made. And when we do those things, whatever they are, in an attitude of worship, you're obeying Jesus. I mean, think about it. Even the innkeeper in this story had a role to play, didn't they? We kind of forget about him, didn't we? don't we? But just the very fact that he ran a, an honest, safe place for people to stay, how necessary that was for the fulfillment of this story. So create something of value. Make money. Start businesses. Create jobs. Manage wealth. I mean, we'll talk about this uh, more next week in particular. That it is our responsibility as image bearers for, for all of us to create economic flourishing out of a world that is now so broken. That, that, is, that is part of our very design of who we are. I mean, it's the, it's the first couple commands that God gives us in the garden, isn't it? And then with the resources that you make, create capacity so that you can give extravagantly. Margin so that you can be generous even beyond a tithe. Money, yes, of course, but also with your time, right? Your expertise, your emotion, to listen and to encourage. You have capacity. What are we going to do with it? Okay, if you're like me at this point, anytime I read this story, I just end up feeling like garbage at the end, quite honestly. And, I mean, I don't know if I hope you feel that way or not, but that's, I mean, that's where it kind of leaves me, right? Because I'm lousy at this. I, I'm the guy who would cross to the other side of this. I would at least like pretend like I didn't notice. I wouldn't make eye contact, right? But I mean, I'm, I am lousy at any of this stuff. And the story of the, of the Samaritan puts me right in my, in my place. And yet, I imagine, I mean, Jesus doesn't go there, but you kind of imagine, right, if the story were to continue, right? I, I imagine this injured man waking up in his hotel room, whole again, or in the process, right, of becoming whole. The bill has been paid for. He may not even know who or how any of it has happened, but he knows, he knows that he's well. So inevitably, he's got to make the journey back to Jerusalem at some point. And I imagine him coming across another person beaten and bloodied there on the road. I mean, what's his response going to be? Because, friends, for those of us here this morning who are Christians, this isn't, this isn't just a parable. Yeah, it's a parable. It's not just a parable. This is our story. This is my story. I, I'm the one because of my own sh- sin and shame because of the brokenness within me and around me. I'm the one lying bloodied in the dirt, dying, lost and alone, unwanted, unloved, until, until Jesus came. And he, he came not just with first aid, right? Not just to pay the hotel bill, but to pay for everything, to pay the very debts that I couldn't possibly cover on my own. Grace and forgiveness and life And you better believe his compassion cost him. From the very riches of heaven to the very depths of the cross, it cost him everything. But he was glad to pay it. Because you see, Jesus 
didn't just have compassion. You know, just have like warm feelings about us as humans. He actually, as the son of God, had the capacity to do something about our biggest problem. He had the capacity to take on all of my guilt and shame and to bear it, to bear it on himself so that he could actually overcome the grave and offer life and forgiveness and wholeness, real wholeness to all of us that we can be whole again. And only when I understand how vulnerable I am, how poor and helpless, only then can I see the miracle it is that the God of the universe would treat me as a neighbor not just a neighbor, but as family. And if you've received such love, we can love. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd help us. God, would you open our eyes, open our imaginations to what, to what you can do in and through us because of what your son has done for us empowering us, strengthening us. God, forgive me, forgive, forgive us for the callous ways in which we do our work, the callous ways in which we can so easily forget the needs of those even close to us as well as certainly across the globe. God, would you help us to see how desperate and needy we are, but that you love us anyway. And that you have rescued us and so that we can be people now who contribute who love the unlovable, who do our, our work in ways that bring you glory and honor, that there is no just uh, in the kingdom that you're building with your people, that everything we do matters. God, you're gonna have to give us those eyes to see that. And so we ask you to, and we, we trust you to do that for us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.